A lot of women often think that being a girl is a weakness. I think it's a superpower because when you lean into the more feminine attributes of just the way that we see the world, you can come back with something that is so much more poetic and so much more evocative and beautiful and truly feminine. And we shouldn't shy away from that. Welcome to the She Clicks Women in Photography podcast. I'm Angela Nicholson, and I'm the founder of She Clicks, which is a community for female photographers. In these podcasts, I talk with women in the photographic industry to hear about their experiences, what drives them, and how they got to where they are now. In this first episode, I'm speaking with Christina Mittermeier, a world-renowned marine biologist, conservationist, photographer, and filmmaker. She's dedicated her life to protecting the world's oceans and inspired millions of people to do the same. She's also a Sony Imaging Ambassador and the first recipient of the She Clicks Lifetime Achievement Award. Hello, Christina. Thank you so much for joining me on this, the first She Clicks podcast. It is such a pleasure to be here, Angela. Thank you so much for having me as your inaugural speaker. I love it. Well, thank you. It really is an honor because I know how busy you are. I've followed your work for a long time, but we actually got to meet at the photography show last year in Birmingham in the UK. And you were speaking there and we were also, or I was gearing up to present the She Clicks Awards and you had won the very first She Clicks Lifetime Achievement Award. So I was absolutely delighted to be able to present it to you there. It was it was so surprising, Angela, because I was there, like you said, for different reasons. Somebody had asked me to speak, but I was wondering the hallways of the of the event when I saw these amazing wall full of beautiful photography. And as I started looking at the names, it dawned on me that they were all women photographers. Mm-hmm. And so one of those ladies dragged me and said, you have to come and meet Angela. And <laughs> it was just such a delight. It's such a visionary thing what you've done. So uh, I was thrilled, thrilled to meet you. Very honored by the award. And um, what can I say? We need more people like you. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, that was that was Kieran. And uh, yes, yeah, she was. I saw her beaming at me and then I saw you and I was I was so surprised. And the thing is, I knew you'd won the, the award. And I was thinking, do you know? Do you know or not? Because obviously I had to seek permission to go on stage at the end of your talk. And either you are a very good actor or you didn't know. I had no idea. I was completely surprised in the most pleasant of ways. And uh, I I thought that you were kind of like making it up at the moment. (laughs) She's like, oh, there she is. Let's give her an award. But I was very, very delighted to hear that there had been so much thought and so much participation behind the scenes. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Now, since that time, you've not let the grass go under your feet. You've done some fantastic expeditions, uh, lots of work, but you've also been uh, very busy in setting up 100 for the Ocean. It's such an amazing initiative. You know, one of the things that attracted me most to you, Angela, was your selflessness in lifting other people around you and creating a community so that we all can speak with a louder voice. And so when I created the International League of Conservation Photographers, I was using that same mindset. And when we created Sea Legacy, the same. And 100 for the Ocean was uh, an idea that Paul and I had, I don't know, last October. And we thought, you know, why don't we just invite some of our best friends to participate? And we'll do this every year and we will donate all the money to conservation. And it, it's been so well received, I think, because people love the philanthropic nature of it. Yeah, well, thank you for your kind words. But it, the pictures on there are absolutely amazing. I mean, I've I've had several in my um, my cart for quite some time and I've got to make the final clicks because the ability to buy them 
ends on the 31st of May, doesn't it? But it's such a fantastic opportunity because like you say, there's 100 amazing photographers involved and you can buy an image for $100, a print for $100. Yeah. And, you know, we, my my partner, Paul and I, we get asked a lot by many, many nonprofits around the world to donate prints because they have these beautiful like, end of the year, you know, events, galas, uh, they need to give gifts to their donors. And it's always difficult when one of your fine art prints is worth $5,000, but when when they can buy something for a hundred, that's just as beautiful. Um, I think it's good. And so many people love having these little prints, as you know. It's been so well received. And I have to say, I'm so grateful to the photographers for their generosity and just for being willing to play. Some of these photographers are not even ocean photographers. <laughs> we have people like Pete Sousa, who was uh, President Obama's personal photographer. And even if they don't know mm-hmm. how to swim, they want to contribute to protecting the ocean. So next year, we will make sure that we have some she clickers in the mix. Oh, fantastic. Well, that was going to be my next question. Will you be doing it again? And it sounds like it's a yes. You know, we only have one week left and we are not going to be reaching our goal of $1 million. I um, I think there's so much noise on the internet. It's been hard to reach audiences. But if we are able to at least cover the hard cost and donate some of the money, you know, we will definitely do it again next year because I think it's a good thing. I think the world needs more more of this. And as photographers, the only thing we can contribute is our art and our influence and our voices. And so I hope that we get to do it again. <laughs> I hope so too. And I look forward to seeing it. I mean, I say I've, I've got quite a few images in my cart already, and I'm sure a lot of people are struggling like me to make that selection because there are so many great images. Um, and I've been going through and following all the female photographers uh, with the SheClicks Instagram account as well, because I think, you know, it's really nice to see all these people and discover their photography. Absolutely. And we have some extraordinary female photographers in the mix and some that were new to me, people that I am only meeting because photographers were just, you know, we, we didn't have a proper nominating process. The time was so short that Paul and I literally just started writing emails to our friends. Mm-hmm. And people were saying, how about this? How about that? You know, and there's so many good photographers out there now. So it's been a process of discovery and delight, really. So good. Oh, that's really nice. But your initial calling wasn't actually photography, was it? You were training uh, to be a biochemical engineer in um ocean sciences or marine sciences, weren't you? Uh, you know, I, I did a lot of reading when I was a young person. And I, I think I've always been very aware of the fact that our planet is in dire and serious, urgent, desperate need of protection. So for me, it's always been a no-brainer that we have to create more protection. But mm. it's been a tough thing to convince uh, people around me. And even today, you know, there was a report that came out that says that by 2027, we will be reaching that dreaded one and a half degree increase in temperature. And people think, oh, it's just one and a half degrees, but it's very serious, especially for animals in the ocean. So I kind of knew that Mm. science is um, not the right tool to engage very large audiences because people don't want to be thinking about numbers and percentages, but photographs, you know, you can invite people into the conversation if you can get them to stop scrolling because they are in awe of what you have presented. And then if you can get them to read your caption, maybe they will click on a link and they will be willing to learn a little more or take an action. 
So I think that's a, a gift that as photographers we we have and we should be using it to engage audiences in, in all aspects of good for society. So how did you manage that transition from being a scientist to being a photographer? You one day think, well, I'm not reaching my audience, so I'm going to buy a camera and I'm going to start doing, you know, taking these great photos. What was your process? You know, I think all of our lives uh, lead us in these zigzagging journeys, right? So for me, as a scientist, uh, I was invited to help write and translate and caption a photography book that had to do with conservation. And so I did. And when the book was finally presented to the public, it was beautiful. You know, photographers had these double page spreads. And I noticed, you know, in the opening, we had a big launch and event, you know, everybody's wearing their gala clothing. People were browsing through this book and they were not reading my text, but they were looking at the pictures. And whenever people were, you know, wondering about an image, they were asking questions. And I thought, wow, if you can get somebody to ask you a question, you have opened the door for a dialogue. Because otherwise, you know, I think what it is, is even today, when I read a scientific paper, sometimes it's so complex that I feel stupid. You know, I feel like I don't have enough information. I don't know enough to really engage with this content. And so I'd rather not. But a photograph, you know, it's a universal language. We all speak photography mm. these days. So I think we feel comfortable entering the dialogue through photography. Yes, you can have a gut reaction. For sure. Mm -hmm. And when you were learning about photography, did you have any female role models? Oh my God, Angela. I mean, we're talking about the 1990s, early 1990s. This was a profession, at least in the United States, that was almost 100% male-dominated and I'm going to say white male. So middle-class, retired doctors and lawyers, they were the ones that held the keys to the castle. And they used to have these conferences. Um, the, the one that I used to attend was the North American Nature Photographers Association and you would look around the room and it was all men. And, you know, what, what was I doing there? I, I had a portfolio mostly of indigenous portraits. Nobody wanted to look at my work. And all they were talking about was, you know, the macho aspects of photography. And they were only interested in the filters and the lenses. And they didn't want to talk about the purpose behind the work. Uh, they didn't want to be bothered with environmental issues. Um, and so I just decided to do my own thing, you know, and I started the International League of Conservation Photographers. And probably, as you know, by now, starting a community is always very difficult, especially photographers. We are lone warriors. You know, we like to be out there alone with our cameras. And so getting photographers to coordinate their thoughts and their actions behind a single purpose is very difficult. But I persevered. Mm -hmm. I'm increasingly finding pleasure in sharing photography actually in the the shooting experience with with people when we go out on a she clicks meetup actually there's a real pleasure in seeing someone else capture a picture that they've been trying to get for ages and they just get that shot that's a really pleasurable experience and i know you do a lot of shooting with your partner don't you do you enjoy that sharing aspect as well you know, in the beginning, it was really difficult because my partner is one of the most iconic National Geographic photographers. And he, you know, there are people that have a, an innate talent for photography. And Paul is one of those people. He is able to come back with incredible shots that are always intimate and are always so crisp and so vibrant. So in the beginning, I, I was very intimidated by, you know, standing on his shadow, on the shadow of his tripod, trying to shoot over his shoulder. So I decided to find my own my own style, you know, and a, a lot of women often think that being a girl is 
a weakness, I think it's a superpower. Because when you lean into the more feminine attributes mm -hmm. of just the way that we see the world, you can come back with something that is so much more poetic and so much more evocative and beautiful and truly feminine. And we shouldn't shy away from that. So I stopped competing with Paul and I just started, you know, doing my own thing, which is complementary. And, you know, I think it's very uniquely mine. Yeah. I mean, it can be quite hard to develop your own, your own style. How did you develop that? You know, I think it's so important to study the work of other photographers and to your earlier point of taking such delight in watching others achieve their vision. It is just as important to have your own vision. And I like to imagine the photograph before I'm going to take it. Mm -hmm. Like if I say to you, you know, we're going to be photographing hammerhead sharks. I am asking myself, you know, this has been photographed a million times. How can I do it in a way that's uniquely mine? And for me, relationships are really important. The relationship between an animal and the space around it or two animals or an animal and a person. So I lean a lot onto that. Uh, and for other photographers, it's different, right? But there is a tremendous joy when that image that you had in your mind actually materializes in front of you. And because you've already thought about it, you're ready to click it. And there it is. And if you've been a good girl and you've studied all your technical aspects, you know, you should be able to just execute on the vision that you already had in your mind. <laughs> but I think that, that forming a connection, whether it's with a person, a human or an animal or a community, that's quite a, a female trait, isn't it? That what will or wish to do that. And, and it's not only a trait, it really is a superpower because being a woman, you will inevitably be underestimated. You will inevitably be invisible. And these are superpowers when it comes to being a photographer. You know, you get to be a fly on the wall and everybody is busy, you know, with their big cameras or their big eagles over there. And in the meantime, you are executing on your vision in a quiet, feminine way. Yeah. Because yeah, sometimes those big, heavy lenses are very unrealistic. For, you know, not everybody can carry them everywhere. So suddenly you have to do something different. Maybe you're using a little tiny lens and getting really close or getting the wider picture. But there's room for everything. Absolutely. I have room for everything and you should not shy away from owning a big lens and using it when it's necessary. Um, and knowing how to use that big lens is very important. But for me, oftentimes, you know, I, I really like the smaller lenses that are wider angle. And if the, you know, if I'm not able to get close enough, then the photograph was not meant for me to have. And I'm happy with that. You know, I, mm -hmm. I've learned the art of letting photographs go just because you don't have the right equipment, you're not in the right place, the right is not right, you know, just put your camera down and look at the thing and, you know, internalize it and don't forget it because all those moments are so special and we get to be out there in nature. So take a moment to just enjoy it. Yes. And one of the key features of nature photographers is that they understand their subjects. But how do you balance the need to sort of know the subjects you're talking about or you're going to be photographing? with actually photographing them because you could spend hours and hours and hours studying animals without actually going out and seeing them and photographing them. And how, how do you find the balance? You know, that's a really interesting question because I started my career as a photographer doing portraiture, just uh, trying to make a living with my camera. And so I was photographing, you know, proms and weddings and that kind of thing. And I think at the core of my style is I'm a portrait photographer. So when I'm out there with animals, 
I'm thinking about making portraits of these creatures and I'm waiting for animals to come close to me so that I can capture that moment when they're, you know, when there's a good portrait. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I, I do this dual thing that it, and it's both very difficult. One is the underwater photography, which I really enjoy and is very, very challenging. There's so many odds stacked against you in underwater photography. But then the other thing that I continue to do is the photography of indigenous people. And I love it because you are able to create real human connections to find uh, commonality, laughter, joy, uh, to get to know the names of people, to learn a little bit about the struggles and the joys of people that you just met. And for me, that's a real gift. So I just came back from the Omo Valley in Ethiopia and I learned so much and my heart was broken many times just watching human suffering. But it was also uplifted by the beauty of the tribes of the Omo Valley. I so highly recommend for photographers to visit this place because it's become one of the only sources of income for these communities. So when photographers visit and we pay to visit the villages and take photographs, you know, we are supporting people maintaining their traditions. And I know a lot of photographers struggle with this concept, um, but I've, I've, I've mm -hmm. kind of made peace with it by now. Um, because watching, especially women suffering because they have no way of making money, is heartbreaking. Yeah. And then the other thing I do is the underwater photography, which is also very difficult. Um, but, you know, I think, I think your question is making me think that it is the same set of skills and it is the same mindset of learning about your subject, of doing your research before you go, of surrounding yourself with experts, of studying the work of other photographers of being a student of art. I mean, all of these things play into how your photographs will look will look like. And you know, sticking with the theme of, of balance, you're obviously very passionate about conservation, but does the responsibility of your work ever weigh really heavily upon you? Yes, it does. And um, if my work didn't have purpose and usefulness to further the cause of conservation, I don't think I would be a photographer. You know, I think I'd be happy to put my camera down. So I th I know for a fact that a lot mm -hmm. of photographers is just the joy of photographing that drives the the art. For me, really is the purpose. And I'm just happy that I know how to do it and that I, I like doing it. But I'd be so happy to put the camera down and just do something else. Yeah. And and having that freedom may, may, makes it great, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I don't yeah, I don't feel like I have to be a photographer or, or die. <laughs> but it's about the, the conservation is the important thing for you. Yeah, you know, I, um, I learned this concept of ikigai when I was a young person, the purpose of your life. And so it's the confluence of what you love, which is also what you're good at, which is also what gets you paid. And it's what the world needs. And for me, this intersection of photography and conservation is my ikigai. So I, you know, I, I do it, I do it with joy, but I don't do it for the sake of doing it. Mm -hmm. And with all that in mind, how do you actually choose the projects that you are going to work on? Well, there's two parts to that answer. The, the, the work that I do for conservation, which is mostly through Sea Legacy, is guided by the need. There, there's so many organizations and projects out there that, you know, would benefit from having a photographer come and tell their story or document whatever it is that they're achieving or the issues they're struggling with. Uh, struggling with. 
so that's the sea legacy part of it. And when I'm in the water, I'm always thinking about, you know, how can I make something really artistic that has a long life either on a wall or on pages of a book and not just on Instagram. But the other side of my work is this whole, you know, portraiture of indigenous people that is less directly attached to sea legacy, but mm-hmm. it's just the thing that I love. And and so I I have to find time to do both. And I have to use two different compartments of, uh, you know, reality and understanding and funding to do both. Yeah. And then you have to find the money to get there. <laughs> I love the interaction that you get when you're photographing indigenous people. <laughs> you never you never photograph people with a long lens standing on the other side of the the forest or something. You know, you're in there. You've obviously had a chat with them. You know, I think the the bubblegum picture is a classic because they were trying to surprise you by doing that by blowing a bubble. Yeah, yeah. Indigenous people uh, and long lenses don't mix. Um, no, you need intimate access to people's lives and you need to res- respectfully requesting, you know, to, to be part of somebody's day. So no, ambushing people with a long lens is, it, it never yields satisfying results. And as for the bubblegum photograph, you know, people always ask me if I gave those children that bubblegum. But as a mother, I can tell you, of course I didn't. They already had it. <laughs> and I would have taken <laughs> it out of their mouths because... Ah, it breaks your heart when you see the the terrible state of people's teeth in places where there's no dental care. But yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Yes. Again, sort of going back to this balance thing. You know, you're very kindly on this podcast. I know you get invited to do all sorts of things, and it must be a difficult thing to sort of get the right balance because obviously there's no point in you going and taking all these photographs if you don't talk about them and get them seen. But equally, you've got to take them as well. So how do you sort of divide your time up? Oh my gosh, some days I feel like I'm a zombie because I'm on Zoom all day. But um, I'm starting to learn how to say no. So I used to, I really want to elevate the art of photography and I really want to, you know, be a role model for other women to pursue this professionally. And so I used to judge all sorts of photography competitions. And I mean, just last week I had agreed to do one in Spain. And when they sent me the submissions, I'm like, oh, my God, I mean, how many photographs are there? They send me 15,000. And I had to write back to say, listen, guys, I just I don't have time for 15,000. You guys are going to have to do a prejudge yeah. and send me the finalist or so, like somebody with more time right, yeah. can, can do this. So I'm starting to say no to things like that. But but there, I, I have to find the balance between speaking about photography just for the art and, and love of the craft and speaking about conservation. And I have to do both. And what I say to my staff at Sea Legacy is that Sea Legacy only works if I remain a relevant photographer. Mm -hmm. And that means continue shooting, continue participating in the community, finding ways to give back, to participate in the innovations in our in our profession, you know, which are always so many new cameras, new. Now now we have to contend with AI (laughs) and NFTs and all that stuff. And you have to be part of it all. So. You, you cannot just become irrelevant. Okay. And I wanted to ask you about something. You, you touched on it at the photography show and you've touched on it again tonight. So at the photography show, you know, you, you were talking about your images, talking about your work. Everybody in the room, you're on a big stage. Everyone in the room was on the edge of their seats, you know, really absorbed with what you're saying. But you mentioned in passing a little bit of um, experiencing imposter syndrome. And you've kind of touched on it. You're saying about being in, in Paul's shadow at one point. Is that something you still experience? You know, I think most photographers will always have imposter syndrome. And if you don't, shame on you. <laughs> we, we, uh, our, 
our success is only as good as our next photograph. And you will always be judged for your worst work. Mm -hmm. So never put it out there. (laughs) Edit your work carefully. But it's such a weird thing, Angela, when when you finally are put up on a stage and people give you all these accolades and you start getting these awards. And you know in your heart of hearts that there are so many other photographers that are more capable, more technically accurate, more proficient. And why me? You know, and I think a huge part of my success as a photographer is this um, infusion of purpose behind the work that I do. (laughs) If it was just photography, maybe I would be, you know, a little more than mediocre. So, yeah, I, I have huge imposter syndrome, and I think most people do. I think you're quite a lot more than mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, you never know if your next shoot is going to be a total catastrophe. And, yeah. you know, going to the Omo Valley, I went with um, uh, a group of amateur photographers, all of them amateur, and they were shooting such good stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God, am, am I a hack? <laughs> <laughs> that, that they're getting this beautiful stuff that maybe I'm not seeing. So it, it was an it was an education to go back and to your earlier point that there's such value in shooting with other people because you never stop learning. Yes. And and just watching somebody else work and visualize and execute is like going to university. So keep doing it. And one of the fun things about shooting with She Clickers is Everybody's always pointing. We've got a great photo where I think it's about five of us and everyone's camera is pointing in a different direction because we've all seen something else at the same spot. But there's always somebody who's moving their camera around because they're doing intentional camera movement. There's someone who's just photographing something because they want a texture. And, you you know, that's a freedom that you get through being an enthusiast photographer. You don't necessarily get that. Maybe as a fine art professional photographer, you might have that freedom. But I think it's it's quite a special thing. But do you, is, is photography your hobby as well as uh, part of your career? No, it isn't. See, that's the thing. I, uh, if, I, if I have a choice to not bring a camera, I'd rather not bring it. And I think I'm getting older now, Angela, and I, I really feel the strong need of being present. Right. And hiding behind the camera has been a great tool throughout my life to shelter myself from things that are uncomfortable or, you know, things that I don't want to deal with. You hide behind mm-hmm. the camera and you can stay there. But these days, I, I really... But don't bring the camera. I used to be the event photographer for mm-hmm. everything, you know. Everywhere I went, I took a camera. And now I go back to my hard drives, you know, 90 terabytes of photographs. And I'm like, what am I going to do with all these pictures? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't do this for a hobby. Okay, fair enough. So, we've come to the section that I'm calling Six from She Clicks. And I've collated some amazing questions from lots of she clickers and I've selected my 10 favourite and I would like you please to answer six. So if you'd like to give me a number from one to 10, I'll let you know what the question is. Well, let's go with five. Number five. Okay. Your photography is not just a journalistic approach that shows a certain situation, but it's aimed to provoke action and it's driving changes. How do you approach the subject to achieve that? What strategies do you adopt? And that's by Carmen, that question. Thank you, Carmen, for the question. I spend a lot of time because I work through partnerships through these organizations that have called me in or called Sea Legacy in to help. So I spend a lot of time just talking to people about what is it that's important for them in in the narrative. And once you have, I mean, and I think the National Geographic assignment here has really helped in, in formulating the storyboard of images that are necessary to tell a story. So I you often use this exercise. If you only have 12 pictures to tell a story, what are those 12 pictures going to be? Because each and every one of them needs to do very heavy lifting to 
you know, create the narrative. Um, and there has to be a common thread throughout them, right? But every one of those photographs has to be able to stand alone as well and to be beautiful and artistic in its own right. And so it's a big challenge. And so it's not just, you know, showing up somewhere and start clicking. You know, there's a lot of thinking that goes behind every assignment, especially when you're shooting with other people's money. You have a huge responsibility to use every minute of the day very wisely. So you better have an idea of what is it that you're trying to say before you start photographing. Okay. Now that answer sounds like a photographer who started shooting with film. Ah, and I did. You know, I'm old enough that I... I Started my career with a, you know, Rolly Flex and old Mamiya medium format cameras and old Nikon FM2. I mean, just so old technology, right? But you were constricted to 36 frames and you didn't know if you had the photograph or not. So you better be damn good at your technical stuff. And more than once I came back and everything was overexposed because I didn't realize that, you know, there was a, a setting, my plus two exposure, right? Yeah. You learn by making mistakes, yeah. and uh, I and I think it's, there's a huge discipline, and not only in shooting with film, but also in developing film in the light, in the in the dark room, because you understand how shadows and light work so much better. <laughs> so if you have a chance to to delve into the wet dark room and into shoot with old cameras, try. It's fun. Okay, so can we have another number, please, from one to ten? Well, yeah, I always like number one. Oh, that's a good one to ask, actually, because. Uh, this is a question that quite a few people asked or were sort of somewhere around it. So I've kind of collated a few questions. So what is the most breathtaking moment you've witnessed while shooting at sea? And do you ever put down your camera just to watch because something is so spectacular? You know, I've had my share of incredible moments from the most amazing sunsets to storms. But I hold a special place in my mind for the moments when an animal has chosen to approach me. When I was in the water and out of the blue comes, you know, six female sperm whales, all enormous. And they're all fearlessly aware that I'm there because I can feel them clicking me, mm -hmm. coming right through me. And they put me right in between them, you know, so gentle, not to touch me. Like, how do you recover from that? <laughs> it's, it was um, an amazing uh, afternoon with a series of encounters with these female sperm whales. And yeah, oftentimes I put my camera down. A lot of the times I put my camera down. Yeah. Especially underwater, uh, looking through the viewfinder, you have such um, narrow perception of what you're looking at that unless you occasionally put the camera down, you just miss the whole beauty of the thing you're photographing. So do it. Put the camera down. Did you feel completely safe when those sperm whales are there? Uh, no, not entirely. <laughs> uh, not entirely. Uh, you know, they, they're wild animals. and. Mm -hmm. You can romanticize them as much as you want, but they're the largest carnivore on the planet. And they do feed on, on uh, you know, squid that are larger than me. Oh. So I didn't think they were going to bite me. I thought they could just, you know, by accident squish me in between them. Yeah. I could get a tail or a fluke uh, that could kill you. Mm -hmm. You know, even if they're being playful, they're enormous. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 You'd be like, holy cow, holy cow. <laughs> and then I, I sing to my snorkel so that they know that I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. And funny, in times of panic, um, New York, New York is oftentimes the song that comes to, <laughs> to my to my head to start singing, letting animals um, to know that I'm there. <laughs> I'll bear that in mind. <laughs>
Next time at Bushy Park with She Clickers when there's a stag getting <laughs> a bit York, too close, I'll start singing New York, New York. <laughs> I think that'll become our theme tune. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, okay, so you've had one and five. So another number, please. Uh, well, let's do let's do three. Let's uh, let's keep it exciting on the on the e- odd numbers. Okay, number three. Are you worried about the demands of ecotourism and wildlife photography holidays? Is now potentially uh, harming fragile ecosystems like the Galapagos Islands? And would you encourage people to focus on wildlife, nature, and conservation in their local areas? That was asked by Sarah. Oh my God, Sarah! What a good question. I think in my lifetime, I have seen the degradation of areas that were bountiful and beautiful. And a lot of it has been because of tourism and some of it because of photography tourism. But absolutely, you know, with the advent of digital cameras, we're all now photographers and we are all going to the places where we can capture the most amazing scenes. I just finished watching a documentary called The Last Tourist. And it really opened my eyes on, you know, on the threats of tourism, which of course are also part of the solution. Because if you think about communities generating income, either from deforestation or from tourism, of course, tourism seems like a lesser evil, but it can be incredibly destructive. And I think it's incumbent upon us as tourists and you know users of the resource to be mindful and to be educated and to understand what is it that we are promoting when we, when we go to these places. And it's not just the abuse and exploitation of wildlife. You know, I, I've always been a very outspoken opponent of game farms where you can rent a wolf or bear that otherwise lives in a cage. But it's up to you as a photographer to be aware and to have a, you know, a moral compass and an ethical guideline of your personal values that says this is not okay. You know, I, I cannot photograph an elephant that is shackled to a tree. You know, and I'm not going to pay somebody to continue exerting that abuse. And the same is goes for communities, right? Um, for this trip on the Omo Valley, I chose a, a provider, a guide, a woman that's been there many, many times. Somebody who finds way for the photography to give back to the communities. We didn't show up just, you know, with our cameras and money. We showed up with food and with soap and with things for the community to benefit from us being there. And then you just want to be respectful, right? I am always shocked when I see photographers meandering into people's homes. <laughs> it's just like, how would you like it if somebody came with a camera and just helped themselves to your living room? Yeah, wow. So I think just uh, being respectful is so important. But uh, yeah, we're destroying our planet, not just with the carbon that it requires for us to travel, but also, you know, just shattering these places to pieces because there's so many of us so choose wisely <laughs> okay thank you so would you like the next odd number uh well yeah sure let's go with seven or should we give a chance to to even numbers maybe, maybe let's go six okay we'll go with six okay so what is the simplest step that a person can take to protect the oceans that question's from liz well there's so many right and the two biggest issues affecting the ocean today are that we have extracted too much fish through industrial fishing Mm -hmm. and we have dumped too much stuff in the ocean because of plastic pollution and other pollutants. So the simplest thing you can do is to learn about the right kind of fish. You know, do a little bit of research and figure out which kind of fish that, because we all need to eat a little fish, it's good for our omegas, it's, 
you know, supports the local fisheries mm-hmm. and local communities, but which one is it? So do a little bit of research. And, I, I, you know, I don't support any industrial caught fish. So if a fish was not caught with a line or it was it didn't come from a local community that I know, if it's not, if it's a carnivore like tuna or salmon, it's better not to eat it. Just think about it. You know, we don't eat tigers and lions because they're carnivores. You know, it takes too much energy to grow one. So why do we feel so comfortable eating tuna and salmon? So yeah, go for the herbivores um, and eat low in the food chain, in, in the food, yeah, in the trophic food chain. Um, more veggies, less fish, less meat. Find ways to reduce your carbon footprint because carbon is the biggest pollutant to the ocean and it is literally killing the plankton that produces the oxygen we breathe. So yeah, we need to do more to speak up for everybody to reduce their carbon footprint. And then finally, the, the single-use plastic problem is still so huge. And, you know, this morning um, I had to go get a blood sample. And, you know, when I was a little girl, I used to get a lollipop. This time I decided to treat myself to a Starbucks coffee. And you cannot refuse the lid. You know, I didn't want the plastic lid and they won't give you a cup of coffee without it. Oh. So, you know, now, now I know I'm not going back. No, that's very strange. She's like, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to be part of that. You know, it's very strange. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do think that having the courage to speak up and I, I did say to the girl, I said, well, that'll be the last time I come because I don't want your plastic lid. So, mm-hmm. you know, speak up, mm-hmm. tell people uh, that the things that, that upset you, you know, all the straws in our drinks, all the yeah. plastic wrappers is just insane. A lot of it ends up in the ocean. And so, yeah. yeah. So there's an interesting story on the BBC News just recently that somebody was on a Norfolk beach. He was walking along and he saw some crisp packets and he looked at them and he realised they were from the 1980s and they actually look pristine. You can read all the wording on them. And there's something's happened with the tides and it's just churned them up. They've been somewhere and it's astonishing. Yeah. My goodness. Astonishing. Well, plastic will remain there for a long time and whales are eating it. Animals that filter feed like whale sharks are eating it. Sea turtles are entangled. I mean, it's just horrific. But the last thing that we can do, and as women, we have a lot of choice here, is just have a a climate change mindset as we plan Mm -hmm. our families. And I see a lot of families that want to have children because they're a cute accessory that you can dress and buy strollers for. But every single person that we add to this planet is a huge carbon footprint and a huge mega consumer. So I'm not saying don't have children. I'm just saying, you know, think carefully about those decisions because... And pass things on. Yeah. It's also a very difficult place to bring children to the world right now. So pass things on and then, you know, raise quality individuals, you know, raise your children to really care and believe in the health of our planet. Okay. So the fifth question, what number would you like? Aha, you pick. You pick. Oh, 10. 10. Okay. What one piece of advice would you give to someone starting out in underwater photography? Become a very good underwater person, a water woman, before you attempt to take pictures. Uh, You need to be a very proficient water person, whether you're on snorkel or on scuba, Mm -hmm. uh, because the ocean is a brutal master and it'll teach you life-defying lessons very quickly. So understand currents, understand... um, you know, weather in general, and do not surrender your well-being to the judgment of others. 
when people get lost at sea is usually because they trusted that the operator of the boat was going to remember to pick them up. And you take your own safety in your own hands. You make sure that your tank is full. You make sure that your operational, the equipment is operational. Um, yeah, and just don't do anything stupid. But do, I mean, the most important thing I can say is that underwater photography is one of the most difficult disciplines in photography. Mm-hmm. And so just be ready for a long journey of trial and error and failure. But once you learn it, it'll be very satisfying. So be patient. <laughs> be patient. That's the main one. <laughs> so which would you like as your last question? Well, let me think. We haven't done four. We haven't. Okay. Which conservation projects in our seas give you the most hope? And would you consider doing photographic projects around them to show society that we can affect positive change? Yes, that's a beautiful question. So I am a very positive individual and I really subscribe to Martin, Martin Luther King's speech of I have a dream. He didn't tell us he had a nightmare. So portraying the beautiful future that we want to inhabit, I think is a huge part of the job. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to ocean conservation, we actually have a recipe that the scientific community has given us. The, the scientists have told us that there are six recovery wedges that we need to attend to if we want to restore health and abundance to the ocean by 2050. Those wedges are we need to create more marine protected areas. We need to protect more species like sharks and whales. We need to stop the flow of pollution into the ocean. We need to rethink how we extract protein from the ocean. We need to restore the habitats that we have degraded like coral reefs and mangroves. And the most important one is we have to think about the ocean as a solution to climate change, not just as a victim. The ocean uh, is absorbing 90% of the excess heat, 25% of all carbon emissions. At the same time, it is exhaling 50% of the oxygen we breathe. So when I think about organizations that I want to support with my work, I am always thinking about those six wedges Mm -hmm. and I'm always thinking about having impact in all six because the one thing that scientists are telling us is that we don't get to pick and choose. We have to do them all. So yeah, that's that's how I think about Sea Legacy as a support system, communications and marketing for all the organizations that are out there working on those six wedges. So I hope that's helpful. Well, thank you so much for answering those questions and thank you for your time. You've been very generous by coming on our podcast. You are very generous, Angela, and I love the group of women that you have gathered around you and around all of us to uplift us, to uh, support us, to be um, role models to each other. So thank you very much for doing that. And I am here if you need help with anything at all. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, we've come to the end of the first She Clicks Women in Photography podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Christina as much as I did. And I'll put links to her social media channels and website in the show notes so you can keep up to date with what she's up to. We'll be back with another episode soon. So please subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform and tell all your friends and followers about it. You'll also find She Clicks on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube if you search for She Clicks Net. So until next time, enjoy your photography.